Our sermon text this morning is a is a relatively short one. It's Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. And I'll ask that you're, if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark 15, verses 33 to 39. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. It says, And when, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask him to give us understanding into his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us your word to appoint us, especially to the sufferings and glory of Christ, your Son, our Savior and Redeemer. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, great things from your word. Teach us by your spirit that we might look to Christ and be strengthened in our faith and that the lost might be converted. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last uh, last Sunday, we looked at... Uh, verses 16 to 32, and what that taught us about the cross of Christ. We saw that in fulfillment of Psalm 22-7, that all who saw Christ on the cross mocked him. It's hard to even imagine mocking someone who deserved to die on a cross. And yet Christ, the sinless Son of God, uh, dying not for his own sins, because he never had any, but dying for our sins, was mocked by everyone that saw him. There, and whether it be the religious leaders, the soldiers, the passers-by, even the other people on the cross that hung next to him, we saw that also in, in being crucified between two robbers, it was fulfilling what the scripture says in Isaiah fifty-three twelve that he was quote numbered with the transgressors, the sinless Son of God mocked and numbered with transgressors. Well, in our text today, we're going to see we finally come to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Jesus, our Savior and Lord, giving his life as a ransom for many, as he said back in Mark 10.45. Uh, this, this is why he came. He, he came to teach, he came to preach, he came to do miracles, but he really came to die for sinners. And so what we see in this brief text this morning is Christ our Lord accomplishing the salvation, the redemption of his people, saving us from our sins. That's what he is doing as he's hanging upon this cross and breathing his Last, and we're, we're going to look at a few things, I think, from our text. And the first thing you see is probably the first thing that jumped off the page at you and from our text. And that is that darkness came over the, the face of the whole land while Jesus Christ was on the cross. Verse 33, Mark says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour, we, we don't. We don't really number our, our, our hours the way they did. They numbered their starting around 6 in the morning. And so when he says 6th uh, hour, what time was that? Mm-hmm. High noon. High noon. Not 
it's not supposed to be dark at high, at high noon. And so this darkness came at a, a most unexpected time, kind of an astonishing event. And I believe we are, we are to see this as it's not a coincidence. It's a, it's a miracle of God that darkness would overcome the entire land. Now that the Hebrew and the Greek words for, for land and earth and ground are really the same. And so there's been some discussion and disagreement of where was it dark? Was the whole earth dark? Was just Jerusalem dark? Where, well, all of Israel? We don't, we don't know. Probably the, the most, uh, the best way to take it is just as our, as our text does here. The whole land, the whole area where this was happening had turned dark. This was not a coincidence. When, when did it turn dark? Right before Jesus breathed his last. The, the apex of his, the worst of his sufferings on the cross is when things went went black. Now what's the significance of that of that darkness? You know, some some have suggested that, you know, it's as if God didn't no one was worthy to see Christ in his final agonies. That that's why it turned dark. In other words, it, it turned dark for the sake of those standing around, and there might be some some truth to that idea, but I think it's far more likely that this darkness was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of, of judgment. The scriptures you might know often speak of certain things as signs of judgment. Clouds. Christ coming with clouds. We saw that earlier in Mark's Gospel when he spoke of that. It's, it's, it's a picture of judgment. Clouds, very often like storm clouds, are a, a symbol of judgment. Well, darkness is also a biblical sign of God's judgment. Commentators point to such Old Testament passages as Joel chapter 2, verse 31 which talks about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord coming. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, talks about the Lord making the sun uh, go down at noon and darkening the earth in broad daylight. Well, that's certainly what's happening here on the cross. In the New Testament, the book of Jude talks about false teachers, and it describes them this way as those, quote, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Revelation 6, verse 12, speaks of the sun becoming, quote, black as sackcloth on the day of wrath. Why was sackcloth black? People used to you know, show their repentance and, and their mourning with sackcloth and ashes. They would cover themselves with ashes. It's hard for us to kind of comprehend and picture that. But it, it, it turned things dark. You know, the ashes tend to make things black and gray. And so darkness is a, is a sign of, of judgment, and this darkness over the land during Christ's crucifixion brings to mind what occurred just before the first Passover. Remember in the Passover, in, in the time when the, God was, was bringing his people out of, out of Egypt, there were, how many plagues were there? Ten plagues. Well, we always think of the last plague. The last plague was the death of the firstborn son, which is also a hint at what was to come on Christ's cross. But what was the ninth plague? It was darkness. Darkness over the whole land of, of Egypt. It was darkness over the land of Egypt that happened right before the death of the firstborn in that tenth and final plague. In Exodus 10, verse 21, describes that darkness as, quote, a darkness to be felt. You ever felt a darkness? Ever, ever been around a darkness like that? Like there's dark and then there's pitch, pitch dark. Where you can't see your hand in front of your face. I was telling someone earlier this week, the only time I can recall being in a place that dark was when I was in the Navy. 
out at sea in the middle of the ocean with nothing but sky and sea around me. Uh, at, at night, we, we, we had a discipline called darkened ship. You know, they, they used to say if you were out on the deck somewhere and you lit a cigarette, the enemy could see it from miles away because it's so, it's so dark. Well, you know, at sea and darkened ship, if you were up top or somewhere on the outside of the ship, you, you could barely see your hand in front of your face. It was that, I've never been around anything that dark before. Well, this, this must have been something like that or even more so. A darkness that could be felt. It must have been a frightening experience for the Egyptians. It was meant to be that. Well, I think that's something of what's happening here when Christ our Savior and Lord is on the cross. Now, this darkness that Christ is enduring uh, lasted for how long? Three hours. The darkness that happened uh, right before the, the killing of the firstborn in the Exodus happened for three days. Imagine three straight days of pitch black. That's what happened during the the days of the Exodus. Well, Christ, the darkness when he was on the cross, lasted for three straight hours, and really the brightest hours of the day, noon to three, was pitch black. That must have gotten everyone's attention. And just as that darkness enveloped Egypt before the death of the firstborn, even so darkness enveloped the land of Israel and Jerusalem before the death of God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, it's not a coincidence that Jesus... What time of year was this in the Jewish calendar? It was Passover. It's not an accident. It's not a, not a coincidence that Jesus is dying on the cross and it gets dark right at right at Passover. Uh, he was the Passover lamb. The Apostle Paul, remember, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We are to, to connect those dots and see him as the fulfillment of the real Passover lamb, the real lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now that darkness over the land during broad daylight when Jesus was dying on the cross was surely a manifestation. It was an outward display of what was going on there on the cross. It was an outward display of what was going on inwardly uh, with our Lord on the cross. For there, what was Jesus? Do- what was Jesus doing in dying on the cross? He was enduring God's judgment for your sins and mine. He was undergoing the wrath of God for the sins of his people that we deserved. He's enduring it. William Hendrickson puts it this way in his commentary. It's an amazing phrase to turn. He says, hell, hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. That's that's not an overstatement. That's that's you know when we recite the Apostles' Creed every other first Sunday, uh, there's a phrase in there that some people don't include, but it says he descended into hell. And there's a lot of dis, you know misunderstanding with that. It, we're not, we're, when we say that, we're not saying Jesus went into the lake of fire. He, we're saying he underwent. He really underwent the wrath of God for our sins. He took the actual penalty that is ours if you're in Christ. That's what he's doing on the cross. Hell came to Calvary that day. The darkness, the utter darkness of God's judgment and wrath is what each of us in this room deserves for our sins and deserves for our rebellion against a holy God. But if you're in Christ by faith, when you see that this, when you see this text, when you see Jesus Christ dying and the land turning dark, see here again in these verses our Lord Jesus Christ enduring God's wrath in your place. That's why our sins can be forgiven. That's why we can be accounted righteous in God's sight. Because he endured the full wrath of God in your place, if you're a believer in Christ. 
today. What comfort you and I should receive. It might seem like an odd thing to take comfort from. It's, it's, an, it's an awful thing to think about, to think about the sufferings of Christ. But what comfort this should bring to you and me? What peace of conscience and mind and heart? You know, what, again, it might sound strange, but what joy this should bring to your heart to see uh, Jesus here dying and knowing that he did that out of love for you, that you might be made right with the Holy God. Because of what Jesus does in this on the cross and the darkness that he underwent and taking God's judgment upon himself, you don't have to, if you're in Christ, you never have to fear death. Everybody's afraid of death to some degree, but you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to fear hell. Why? Because Jesus underwent death and judgment and hell in our place. He bore your sins and mine on the cross and endured all of that in your place. That's what we do. We deserve darkness. We deserve judgment. We deserve death for our sins. And yet Christ underwent and took all that upon himself. Well, the second thing we see in our text in verse 34 is not just the darkness, but Christ's cry from the cross. People call it his cry of dereliction. And it says in verse 34, at the ninth hour, so three hours after the darkness had come over the land, he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's speaking Aramaic, but he's quoting the Hebrew text of, of Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God. Eli is my God. And Eloi is, is the, the Aramaic of that. It's a little bit, a little bit different. Now the bystanders, people literally standing around watching as if this was some kind of a spectacle for them to, to, to enjoy, they misunderstood what Jesus said. They thought, you know, from the ear, it sounds like he's, he's calling on, in the Greek, it's Elias, but it's Elijah. They thought he was calling upon Elijah in verse 35. Now why is that? Did you read, did you hear that and you go to your CC? You say to yourself, of all the things they could think he's saying, why on earth would they, would they assume that he would pick Elijah to call out to? Well, the Old Testament prophesied that Elijah would come back before the coming of the Lord. That he was going to be the one that, that prepared the way of the Lord. He was the forerunner. And so they, they, they thought, well, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. If he's really the Messiah, if he's really the conquering king, what's going to happen? according to what they misunderstood. They thought, maybe they thought Elijah would come if he really was the Messiah, would come, take him off the cross, and then they would show the Romans a thing or two. Some, we don't know exactly what they thought. That seems to be what they thought possibly could happen. They were probably still just mocking him in some, some sense. I doubt they really expected Elijah to come. Uh, but that's what they thought he was saying. Now, what's wrong with that? A lot of things, but they didn't understand. He wasn't delivering his people by military might. How was Jesus delivering his people? By being on the cross. To come down from the cross, as people mockingly said to him in the previous verses, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If you're, if you're really the Christ, come down from the cross. Well, he can't if he's the Christ. He came to die for our sins. He came to, to deliver his people and save his people by dying. That's what he came to do. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a sign that things had gone the wrong way. Now, uh, those words of Christ here, they quotes from Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, remember, David penned those words somewhere around a thousand years before the time of Christ. 
And here Christ uh, takes those words and, and they really are, they're really more accurately spoken by him than they ever would have been by David. For David to speak them in, in, in that psalm and even for us to sing it, it's an exaggeration. David's worst sufferings weren't like this. They were a for, they were a shadow of this. But for Jesus, the shadow was a reality. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that very, very same psalm we looked at earlier, verse 16, talks about his hands and feet being pierced. And that was hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented yet. See how the word of God is so precise and so inerrant. The Savior's cry of abandonment shows what's involved in Christ's suffering on the cross Suffering the wrath of God for our sins. What, what was he enduring on the cross? What, what, what does hell involve? What does condemnation involve? It involved enduring judgment and separation from God. He endured judgment and separation from God in our place, if you're a Christian this morning. Our sins cut us off from God, Isaiah 59.2 says. That's what happens. Our sins cut us off from God. They, they block the way. And just as one of the things that makes heaven, you know, if I were to, if, you know, if, 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 if a child were to ask you today, what's heaven? What would you say? You wouldn't even know where to begin, probably. I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to describe it. The scripture, you know, our best imagination fails when it comes to thinking of that. But one of the, the consistent themes of scripture when it talks about heaven is that heaven is being with the Lord forever. It's being, it's a place where you're with God forever. First Thessalonians 4.17. What makes hell, hell? A lot of ways to answer that, but one of the main ways is being cut off from God forever. Second Thessalonians 1.9 describes hell, in a sense, as suffering, quote, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is kind of the final separation from God. And God is the source of all good. Heaven is being with God forever. Hell, in a lot of ways, is being cut off from God forever. Well, the third thing we see in our text is the temple curtain being torn in two when Christ breathed his last, in verse 38. Uh, you know, when, when does the temple get torn in two from top to bottom? Just like the darkness happening, ju- happening just at that one time, when Christ is on the cross, it's just no coincidence that at the precise moment when Christ cries out with a loud voice, and Mark doesn't tell us what he says, uh, but Luke does, it's right when he breathed his last that the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Luke 22 says for us what, what Jesus said at that last cry. Luke 22:46 says that he called out with a loud voice, quote, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up, gave up the ghost or breathed his last. So when he died, the moment when Christ died, that temple curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It's hard for us to kind of imagine how big this thing would have been, but it's as if somebody grabbed it from the top and tore it. You know, I don't know what, what unbelieving scholars and, and whatnot say to describe what this might have been. Uh, but it, it's nothing but an act of God. It, it wouldn't, this is not how things would have fallen apart normally. And it's no coincidence that it ripped the way and was torn the way uh, that it, that it did. Now, 
to our ears, we've never seen the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, we've, most of us have probably never seen even a representation of it. There are uh, places that have like a reconstructed version of it that you can go kind of look at and get some idea of it. Um, but what it, to, to us, it might sound like a really weird uh, detail for Mark to add. Why does it matter? What, why does it matter that some curtain in a temple uh, was torn down? Well, the very first mention of that, I think this will help us start to see what the reasoning for this was, is in Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 to 33. It says this. This is part of the, the instructions for the tabernacle. Here's where your eyes glaze over, right? It says, uh, And you shall make a veil, a curtain, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, you know, the angels. And you shall hang it on four pillars uh, of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So this is, this is you know, kind of, uh, you know, where do you put your, your fine china if you have china? You put it on display in a china cabinet kind of thing. Well, this is the most important part of the tabernacle and the temple. It's where the Ark of the Covenant goes, the Ark of the Testimony. And so this ornate curtain was put around it as, as a barrier, and this is what it says. And the veil, the curtain, shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And that curtain's kind of like a do not, it's a very beautiful do not enter sign, but it's like a do not enter sign. You, you don't, you don't, you're not worthy of being past this place. Even, even the priesthood couldn't go through, only the high priest could go through there once a year. So that curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. That it's a, it's a picture of God's presence. The most holy place was where the Ark of the Testimony was kept, and only the high priest could go behind that curtain once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to bring sacrifice even for himself to go in. It was something that, that no man could take upon himself to go in. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, describes this same curtain. It says, But into the second, that's the most holy place, or the holy of holies, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Here it is. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, while that temple was still standing, while that temple was still under use before it had become obsolete in Christ's death, uh, the way into the holy places was, was closed, in a sense. Not to say people weren't saved and made right with God, but there's a sense in which access to God uh, wasn't fully opened yet. And it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The way into the holy places was not yet open as long as that first section was still standing, as long as that division, that barrier was still up. Notice, we're supposed, I mean, according to the writer of Hebrews, you and I are supposed to be learning something even by the way the temple was constructed, by the way the tabernacle was constructed. He says the Holy Spirit was indicating or teaching something through that. So there's a lot, a lot of things we can learn from those sections of Scripture that we have a hard time reading through. If you're on a, a one-year Bible reading plan, you get to some of these sections and you, you kind of feel like you hit a wall, no pun intended. Well, these things are meant to teach us something, and so we need to take the time to think about them. 
So until that curtain was torn and no longer standing, the way into the holy places was in a sense inaccessible. But now with the death of Christ, that, that barrier has been removed and the way to God has been fully and finally open to those who are in Christ by faith. That, that tearing of the curtain was a big hint that the temple was now obsolete. Why? Because the true temple had come. The true priest had come. The true sacrifice had been offered once for all for the sins of many. It had served its purpose. The tabernacle and the temple were all were obsolete at that at that very point. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, goes on and says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. That's a shocking statement. Like we read it, it's old hat to us. To a first century Jew who had come to Christ, that would have been a mind-blowing thing to hear read. Since we have confidence or boldness to enter the holy places, why? How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. What is that curtain a picture of? Christ. His death was the opening of that barrier. It says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Drawing near was not something you would have done back then. You would have stayed away from that barrier. He says, now we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice what he said there. The Lord Jesus Christ opened up that new and living way. How? Through the curtain. And what was the curtain? His flesh. All kinds of meaning with what's going on here in Mark's gospel at the death of Christ. That curtain being torn was a picture of the body of Christ, his flesh being torn and broken for us and for our sins. His flesh was the true curtain, just like his body was the true temple, just like he is the great high priest, just like he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so what's the what's the takeaway for all this? Like what what where do we go from here? What does it matter to you and me sitting here in in the 21st century here in Ramona, well, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, because Christ has opened up that new and living way to eternal life through the curtain of his flesh, and because in Christ we have a great high priest over the house of God, we should do at least two things. We should draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's only in Christ that sinners like you and me can, can draw near to a holy God. The last thing you want to do or try to do if, if you're a sinner in standing in your own sins is draw near to a holy God. And yet in Christ we can do that. And we can do that with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why? Why is that? Because in Jesus Christ, by faith in Him, what does He say? Our hearts are, quote, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies are washed with pure water. That's a reference to baptism, and really what baptism signifies, right? Or having our consciences sprinkled clean, and our bodies washed with pure water. He's not saying you're forgiven because you got wet in a church, but he is saying that's what it was a picture of. 
And notice I'll say this, this is free. Uh, it's also a reference, I think, to not just a baptism, but its mode and its significance there. Well, the second thing the writer of Hebrews tells us is that because Christ, what he has done for us in his death on the cross, we should not just draw near, but we should also, quote, hold fast the confession of our faith, of our hope, rather, without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. So draw near and hold fast the confession of our hope that's in Christ. Now, that, that confession of our hope is often something tied explicitly to baptism. The ancient church very often would have someone confess even the Apostles' Creed as part of their baptism. That was the confession of their hope, and it was tied explicitly to their baptism when they came to Christ and joined the church. Now, speaking of a confession of hope, as Hebrews does there, look at the great confession made by that centurion as he witnessed the death of Christ up close and personal. He was the one there supervising, standing opposite of it, and he saw the manner in which our Lord Jesus Christ breathed his last. And in verse 39, what did he say in response? When he saw the way Jesus died, think about this. We don't know how many times this centurion had seen men die. We don't know how many times he had seen men be crucified. I'm, I'm guessing it would have been a number of times. And maybe he had grown callous to it. You know, even, even something like that, you see it enough times, we tend to kind of grow calloused and hardened to it. And yet somehow when he saw Jesus dying, when he heard Jesus cry out with that last great cry and give up, give up the ghost, so to speak, and breathe his last, something was different. This was not like the other ones that he had seen where men, you know, who knows what kind of things other men cried out. They cried out, you know, in, in their own agonies and whatnot. This, this one was different. He breathed out his last he, he cried out before he had done so. It's as if he laid his life down. No one took his life from him. He, he laid it down. This was no ordinary death. And so what does he say? Truly this man was the Son of God. Now that's, that's the first thing Mark mentions in the whole Gospel of Mark. Way back in Mark 1, verse 1, he talks about, about the Gospel being about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here he is at the cross, demonstrating and, and saying and confessing through the mouth of that centurion the very same thing. That centurion was a Gentile, and somehow he knew this was no ordinary death. He, maybe that darkness over the whole land also underscored it and got his attention, but he knew something was different about this man hanging on the cross before him. He knew that this man was innocent. Luke twenty three forty seven. the centurion says this was an innocent man. And yet, look at how he died, and he laid down his life. This man laid down his own life, no one took it from him. So do you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God today? Is that, is that your confession that you hold fast? That he, do you believe that he died for sinners and he died, he didn't just die, do you believe that Jesus died for you and for your sins? If so, then draw near to God through him and hold fast the confession of your hope that is in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 10, it goes on in the next couple of verses, 24 to 25. It goes on to add one more thing. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So draw near to God with a, with a, with a conscience Cleansed from your, your sins and your guilt. Hold fast the confession of, of your faith, of your hope in Christ. And then what does it say? 
don't neglect gathering together. The church. Keep gathering together with God's people and, and consider how to stir each other up to love and good works and encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the response. If you want the response to Jesus laying down his life on the cross and breathing his last and undergoing the, the wrath of God for your sins and for mine, the book of Hebrews lays it all out right there for you in chapter 10. Praise God for his glorious grace that his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, has opened up the way for sinners like you and I to be made right with him and to draw near unto God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the testimony that it bears, first and foremost, to Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, the Lord of glory, enduring darkness for our sins, that the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes, by his wounds, You healed us from our sins. Lord, we give you praise. We know we don't give you the praise even remotely that you deserve for this, but we give you praise and thanks, and we just lift up our hands and and wonder that you would love sinners, rebels like us enough that you would send your Son and that he would willingly undergo all these things that we might be made right with you, that the way into the holy places has been opened up through the veil that is through the flesh of your Son. His death in our place even as he cried out later on that it is finished in one of the other Gospels, that he has paid the full price for our sins. Lord, we we shudder to think about what we deserve, but we give you praise and honor and glory that Christ underwent all of that, that we might be made right with you. Lord, we pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you and is still in their sins, that you would turn them from their sins, turn them back to you by faith in Christ. Give them life eternal and abundant even today. And Lord, we ask that you would Work in our hearts, those of us who have known you by your grace for uh, any length of time, that we might be filled by your spirit and filled with fresh wonder and joy and and peace and all these things that come only from thinking of and grasping that Christ died for sinners and died for us. Uh, Give us grace to be uh, giving you thanks and praise in the name of Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.